Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art and our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Cray Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Hi, America. How are you today? Hi, good, good. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Welcome to Beyond the Art. So I know a little bit about you, um, but for our listeners, I know you're the editor and publisher writer of the First American Art Publication. Uh, tell us a little bit about that publication and uh, what is its core essence to be distributed out to its readerships. Sure. It's First American Art Magazine, and we're quarterly. We're in print, but we also have a digital component. And uh, my training is all as an artist. All my art de- I have three degrees, and they're all in painting. So we were started by Native artists because we need an honest voice, and we need fact-checking, and we need something that's very expansive and not limited, so something that acts accurately reflects what's going on so um we're open to any media and we've opened more and more to literary arts um singing music um film there's so much going on in theater so expanding that notion of what is art but um and you know we are based originally in santa fe now in norman oklahoma but um like i said our uh literary editors up in london ontario and we do have writers in france we have writers in england um, one writer from Mexico, but I'm always looking for Latin American coverage. Um, and that is our scope is the Americas. So North and South America, indigenous people. But, um, we, you know, native people show and exhibit all over the world. Um, so we do try to reflect that. We've covered, uh, native artists going and traveling and showing in China. Um, I think it's really important. And this has been going on for a long time. <laughs> so we're just actually, you know, kind of reflecting how cosmopolitan Native artists are. So uh, when did you start the publication and ha- what's the transition that you've seen from the state dart to today? What's the continuation of the theme that's being projected outward about the Native, Amer- Native American art scene, but also how you've seen the change and transition from when you started to today and some of the artists and what's really important to them in the story that's continuation of what they're trying to say about their artwork. Yeah. So we're about to hit our 10th um, anniversary issue. So that'll be fantastic. Congrats. uh, (laughs) Publication is kind of incredible. A lot of tenacity, but um, so there's always, you know, I grew up in the native art world in Oklahoma, like in Muskogee and Norman. So there's always kind of, um, this view, kind of a little cynical, you know, that um, every generation, every 25 years, Native art gets cool. And I definitely saw that in uh, 1992. Like, we, mm-hmm. we were it, you know. We were the and, it thing at that point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it fades. But um, it's really amazing. And I would mark um, 2005, um, Gaylord Torrance's exhibition, um, Plains Indians, People, Earth, and Sky. When mm-hmm. that hit, that was showed in quite broadly, Musée de quite broadly in Paris, and then showed at his um, institution, Nelson Atkins in the Met. And there was kind of this feeling that that was a groundswell of interest in Native art, and that's just exploded since. And it really hasn't lit up. So this was very sustained. And when we first started, I kind of did feel um, that 
Kid Tipper and Native Bar was the art that no one wanted at right. the time. Really kind of felt like that because, the, you know, I know as a painter, I, you know, I do a lot of portraiture. I paint people as they are, you know, in the clothes they wear. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, so they might have short hair instead of beautiful long hair and they're not riding a horse. They're running a bicycle or a motorcycle. Right. So I knew if you, if you buy into the existing tropes and stereotypes and people's expectations, you sell. You can be very commercially successful, but, um, you know, no, so like, I want, <laughs> I want to, uh, I want to reflect how awesome and amazing native people truly are instead of, you know, reifying outsiders, um, misinformed expectations. And now the art world really seems like they've come around. It's kind of extraordinary. And I think there's a lot of reasons. I think native Native artists have always occupied this weird permission to tell the truth in the right. artwork. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the truth is obvious. I've used example, Wander's Life. Like, that's pretty damn obvious. But Native artists, you know, we don't have to be layers upon layers of complexity and irony. We can just... Be true to know, ourselves and where, yeah, where we come from. Ours. And now I think there's really a hunger for that. And of course, there's diversity. And that's the thing is like, you know, we use words like Native American or indigenous, but there's 600 different First Nations in Canada. And then how many Inuit communities? And then how many Correct. Inuit communities are in Greenland? Like you go down um, country to country, there's hundreds upon thousands of diverse communities and we're all diverse. We're not the same. So mm-hmm. we all have our own languages, our own religions, and we kind of fight tenaciously to hold on to those. So um, when it comes to diversity, we are uber diverse <laughs> and i i'm glad that there's a reckoning in our world a lot of it is led by black lives matter but um this realization that you need a multiplicity of viewpoints and now there was all this funding <laughs> that i watch happening um where people like oh we need to diversify leadership in museums and uh you know they threw money at it and created uh, fellowships and now there's an understanding within the museum world that there has to be a really seismic change and it has to be like at the leadership board level the boards mm-hmm. have to be diversified because if they're not diversified nothing else will be so um yeah lots of changes lots but of changes throughout the last 10 years i mean that is that's impressive yeah. 10 years in publication you've made it through yeah. the hump as they say <laughs> yeah, so built, like and it might be our doing and i think a lot of it is just the nature of the internet and the nature of the art world that now we can communicate small uh rural communities uh geographically remote communities can be connected and i think that cannot be um overstated enough um i would like as to the, take all the credit but i can't but anyway. you can go ahead as <laughs> a creative editor and also a writer what is your curatorial practice um that you've instituted when you started the magazine and to today, you know, is it that type of artist? Is it the diversification, as you said, as you said, is, is the transformation and interpretation of the outside world looking at Native American art itself? So there were a lot of, um, we did research and we did uh, questionnaires of what people wanted, what they didn't want. And um, I think it's kind of hilarious what people didn't want, but they were like, you know, we did have kind of this mantra of like, not the same six artists. And I right. realized that's not just a native art world problem. That's an art world problem where someone gets famous. So everyone jumps on board. Like everyone mm. needs that one. And it's like, you know, the go-to artist. But as artists on the ground, we get to see, I mean, I think the art world is very altruistic, but I think the native art world is very, very altruistic. 
where we see these wonderful talented artists coming up and also elders that haven't been written about sufficiently. And we want to lift them up. I think we all have this shared responsibility to lift each other up. So we really want to expose. I love uh, uh, writing about, we, you know, we cover a little bit of emerging artists, but for the most part, you know, when it comes to profiles, we want someone with a fairly well-established um, over of art, mm-hmm. you know, that we can talk about, you know, but when they're at a level where they're just about to explode, where their art is right. mature and they found their voice and they're about to go huge. I love being able to um, portray someone at that mode. But I think what's important about the magazine is uh, I let the, the writers come. I want the writers to be passionate about what they're writing about. So they come to me with what they want to write about. And I always think it's like, how do I learn so much about native art? I read the magazine. And some, <laughs> some um, we will... Um, a sign like some stories are big and we just we need someone to cover up like uh, the field museum and the idol jerk museum both uh renovating their permanent halls and have you been to the field museum before the i have place? not it's on my list okay it is it looks victorian you know mm. they're used the dead taxidermic birds which i know some people love it but their their halls were victorian so the fact that here's this natural history museum completely revamping themselves and the expectation now is in the art world that uh, you need native voices, but you need many native voices. And this plurality mm-hmm. is so important. And I think that's something that is, um, you know, kind of rippling throughout the art world, that you need this plurality of voices. So that's definitely reflected in uh, our editorial content. Do you think there's a story to be told from the Native American artists from when you started 10 years ago? It was it more landscapes and part of our culture and heritage but is there a political point to make a point to say here we are here's our view we've gone through this for the past since first contact this is what we feel is important to us now yes we understand our cultural cultural heritage and some of the important factors of our native american heart as various tribes but is there a point of view in today's society that we need to take a stance and say something and this is our point of view and is that do you see that's being replicated a lot from the long young artists that are up and coming? Well, I think there's always many in the art. And um, I think, again, there's a plurality of views. So we need to, we, as a magazine, we need to reflect uh, the reality on the ground where some people may be really interested in technique and aesthetics. And they absolutely have that right as a Native artist. And then um, some people are very, um, you know, kind of very overtly political and very engaged with um a European American or Euro Canadian audience. And you don't have to have one audience. Like we've, I'm really grateful that we've been able to uh, write about artists that aren't, you know, native artists that aren't really participating in the gallery scene or the Mm -hmm. museum scene. And they really make work for their own community. So the whole spectrum is incredibly important, but there's, there's never been one viewpoint. There never will be one viewpoint. So our pilot issue that is online for free, um, you know, we really just wanted to blow all people's expectations out of the water. So um, my uh, friend Roy Boney, you know, I, I can't believe how successful he is. I'm like, oh, my God, I know Roy Boney. But he wrote about uh, <laughs> this uh, multi, um, multi-native artist um, participation in a mainstream art show in Paris. And I think that's really important that... Uh, Native artists do dovetail into the larger art world. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote about the contemporary art scene in um, 
among Greenlandic Inuit arts artists, because I think people, you know, forget that Greenland's part of North America. So we really just want to take people's expectations and just blow them out of the water. And I was I was really grateful. Like Sarah Sense wrote about a Mapuche uh, textile art artist, and um, I think there's a constant, you know, kind of pushful argument about. Okay, so who's the revolutionary? Who has the political content? Who is really making a point? And um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping to get mainstream readers to understand that you can have a ceramic pot, you know, a ceramic vessel and it's utilitarian art, and that is loaded with content. And right. for someone, for a native person to harvest their own clay and pit fire a pot is making a massive political statement. Yeah, about yeah. connection to the land, about the forces that are working on the earth, about um, using your hands. You know, there's so many layers of meaning behind it. So it's kind of wooing the audience like, okay, this isn't obvious. That this, it's right. not like, you know, oh, this this politician sucks. Like, we get that. That's really obvious. Right. How do we get to the next level? Like, I'm wearing a shell engraving by Antonio Grant, Eastern Band Cherokee. So what is he saying by making a shell engraving today and carrying these designs forward into today's world? And he's saying they're immortal. The mm-hmm. these are representing immortals, but the designs and the meanings are immortal too. So the, so the artwork is more than just artwork. There's a story behind it. There's a connection. There's a connection to the person. There's a connection to the tribe. It's a connection to that person's heritage. It's part of their DNA, so to speak. Um, we, I mean, you... We discussed how we're on the upswing now. We're the it factor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why do you think that why, it's always good to be the it factor, but why is it so prevalent now? Why, why the moment now? And do you think it's going to last for beyond two or three years? Will we fade away again? And then another 10 years, we might come like, ooh, look, Southwest yeah. art or something, you know, yeah. just something that gets that kind of kitschy feel that people's like, oh, I got to have it, got to have it. But do you think now we're here to stay and we're we're a force to be reckoned with, with the Native American art and the cultural scene, um, especially being in various galleries nationally? Um, I think there's certain artists that always want to engage with the art world on their terms, and they're making a sacrifice, but I, I applaud them representing. Um, and then there's so many Native artists who don't care what outsiders think, and they're just going to do what's important to them and what's important to their community. Mm-hmm. I definitely think the mainstream art world is fickle. And um, I think, you know, there'll be another arc and it might be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I'm not worried about it because <laughs> um, we do what we do because it's important and necessary. Right, um, right. Do you yeah. think some artists are playing to their audience instead of actually, I don't want to say be be truthful to themselves, but is it more about getting their name out there and selling the artwork or is it about playing to the audience and saying, okay, I'm going to give you what you expect, or I'm actually going to give you what you don't expect and what's coming from my soul and my energy and my DNA. Yeah. And that's kind of that, um, the intrinsic motivation, like, is it coming from within yourself or is it extrinsic? Is it coming from without? And don't you think most artists are kind of operating on a continuum of, Mm -hmm. you know, the audience and themselves and, it's growth. It's growth within themselves and the growth within the market, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and I think you always, if you can always find your own market, like the art world's so huge that, um, if you, you know, if you put yourself out there and you keep maneuvering, you'll find the right people, you'll find the right audience for yourself, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of the artists out there are kind of looking at history and creating art forms or decolonization 
of where we started and where we came from and our transition in today's society? Yeah, well, I definitely take the fitness viewpoint that the personal is political, but, um, you know, native artists get to do whatever they want. So if I, you know, if there's an artist who's like, I purely want to do something based on aesthetics and I only want to explore color, that's a right. But I do mm-hmm. think it's a worldwide uh, movement since uh, postmodernism where the history, because I think modernism was a global movement and it otherized, instead of otherizing, you know, a certain geographical area, it otherized the past. But, um, you know, for us, our histories, our past has been ripped from us. Our histories have been ripped from us. And that's so many communities around the entire world. So postmodernism, I think, is using the past as a resource, you know, in all its fragmented um, ways that we get it. So there is, and Matthew, um, Matthew Ryan Smith, um, one of our brilliant writers and our literary editor, he wrote about archival art, which um, Hal Foster, the art critic in New York, he defined mm-hmm. that. It's one of the few that argues that we still have discrete art movements today because, you know, a lot of people like Arthur C. Danto argues that art movements are over. We don't have art movements. But he he described, Hal Foster described archival art, and I'm like, oh my God, that's what so many people are doing. And Shane mm-hmm. Goshorn is the best example I can think of that. Eastern Band Cherokee, and we, we lost Shan, I believe in 19, um, I mean, 2018. But um, she was literally going to the archive and copying these documents and weaving these documents into baskets. So that's, I can't think of a more... Um, you know, literal use of the archive and transforming it into today's art. Absolutely, so absolutely. I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't really follow the very esoteric arguments about what is original and what is creating something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, like, it's probably, you know, people argue there's nothing that's original and that's probably a completely valid. <laughs> right. We didn't, we didn't have the media. We didn't have the social media. We didn't have cameras. You know, we, we understand and we try to interpret to today's what it means to us and growing as a culture. Um, what really, I think, what really grabs you being a writer and the editor of the magazine that's like, oh, we have to cover this, we have to cover this? What really is gravitating you into really, I don't want to say exploiting, but it's just, <laughs> I thought one of just, just burns your passion. It's like, yeah, I love seeing small communities working together and creating something they love. Like when you see a, a tribe um, be able to, uh, Institute a new cultural center or when people, when artists get together and mm-hmm. self-organize and they curate their own shows, like, you know, that we have to be the change we want to see. Right. So it's so exciting, um, you know, and um, I didn't realize how many gaps there are. Like one of our um, writers in the first issue, um, Neven, Neven Southall, they, uh, their passion is uh, native uh, graphic arts. And before talking to Neven, I had no idea that there isn't an organization for Native American graphic artists. And I, d- I just assumed there was, because you think every tribal paper, who's laying out the paper? All the tribal seals, the tribal flags, mm-hmm. who's designing those? So you have thousands of people that are kind of unsung heroes. So Nebo was just involved um, with other graphic artists to present the first type Native American typography um, and I'm saying Native American, I should be more careful with my words. But first typography conference or symposia online for indigenous peoples of the Americas. So the fact that they saw this gap right. and were able to fulfill this gap, that's awesome. And then you think now that that door's been opened, like all these other people will be able to coalesce around this idea and, you know, work together. 
Correct. I mean, one of the other items that besides that, the graphic I've seen lately in the last probably a couple of years is Native American comic art uh, yes, being a resurgence yes. and really making a statement and people kind of exploring that and actually extending it even further, uh, which which really grabs me because it's a story that hasn't been told. It's it's an art form that hasn't been told and it's new. It's, it's to our generation, our today's society and seeing how that's kind of just morphing into something very unique and it's exciting yeah and it's really exciting too like molly denali that uh native kids can turn on tv and there's a reflection of a reality they mm-hmm. can relate mm-hmm. but i think it's also important that uh like molly of denali or okay totally different but the movie prey which action movies are not my thing but i watched <laughs> Prey with no expectations and i was like this is brilliant but the fact that it's getting this widespread audience, and I, I think that goes back to the personal is political. But, um, you know, kind of the more uh, unique story you tell about yourself, ironically, the more people can plug in and relate to it. And um, Sterling Harjo and um, uh, Taika Waititi's uh, Reservation Dogs, like, completely is blowing up. But all these different communities, people that aren't even Native American, just can relate to those stories. They're so beautifully well told so i don't think there's anything universal you know right, that's right. modernist viewpoint but there are things that you know different communities that feel underrepresented can definitely relate to that's exciting that's a, it's very exciting and i'm hopeful personally that since comic art native american comic art is on the the surge so to speak that this helps kind of guide and infiltrate to the youth of something that they're not getting either from home, uh, from their community, or even educational purposes, that this is kind of driving their force in the back of their minds. Like, oh, this is very cool. I'm, I'm connecting to this, and I'm going to really? learn more about my heritage and um, the artistic value of what my heritage brings to the table, um, since art is not part of the curriculum right now in a lot of schools Maybe nationally. Not. Yeah, locally. <laughs> Do you think that's yeah. a problem, though, that that – we don't have that in art in the essence is the classics, the Renaissance, all European driven in our art schools and native American youth are not learning about it. And it's kind of like brushed aside. Oh, I'm just worried about people not getting any art classes. whatsoever. Right. <laughs> True. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. There's trouble <laughs> with our educational system here in Oklahoma, <laughs> but, um, that is kind of the beauty of the era we're in. If you are curious enough to ask a question, your smartphone or your laptop at your school library has this window into this incredible world. Like, um, I was on OCO TV and I'm like, whatever it was, TV. And then, um, uh, my boyfriend at the time started watching it and I was like, these are incredible. Like, this is actually good information, solid, accurate, good, interesting information mm-hmm. about Cherokees. And I'm like, I've never heard of that being in the public realm. So it's like, that's free. Like, any kid could punch in OCO TV, and then there's all these stories unfolding. Exactly. So I think it's just having that curiosity to look. And, um, yeah, I do think you kind of do need that. You need to ask the question. You need to be like, well, I need to learn about art from my community or maybe i live in this area maybe i live in iowa so who are the tribes in iowa do i want to learn about that and i do think that's a that's a greater um greater problem at least here but i think worldwide a sense of displacement and disconnection to the land we live on so i think there is a strong craving and that dovetails with the urban um gardening movement which i totally support but um you know like who Whose land am I on? Right, you right. Know, so that 
that leads people to be curious, like who are the tribes who lived here? Who are the tribes here today? Um, you know, because most cities have a major urban um, native community. Mm-hmm. And that's something else good is, yeah, representation. What you're talking about, representation is amazing. And Tommy Orange, um, you know, Cheyenne, mm-hmm. uh, that he was able to write There There, which is about Oakland. So it's like, okay, this is an urban Indian novel. And having that story told is so important. Right, right. No, I completely agree. And in, in that connection value, you know, when I was growing up, I had something that was connected. It was my great grandmother and my great great grandmother, which I was lucky enough to meet. And wow. knowing those stories that were being uh, told, generational, you know, and I think that is being lost because, you know, we're kind of just blending in where you got to take a stance and you got to know where you came from and who came before you and so on and so forth. So telling those stories, and now everything is online when I was growing up with encyc- encyclopedias. Yeah. Um, yeah. that you have that, I think it, it comes more from the heart when you hear it from an elder. And if not, elders are not sharing it anymore, it's kind of getting lost. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, Like in the 70s, that was definitely a time of pan-Indianism. And you had, you know, you had these generations that grew up in cities mm-hmm. because of relocation and just economics too, that they didn't really have a tight connection to their own tribes. And then that arc kind of shifted and I know that there was a, you know, the 80s and 90s were more of a craving to finding out your um, specific tribe. So I do think there is a lot of, uh, you know, kind of pan-Indian, yeah. <laughs> Is that a but, coined uh, word? <laughs> no, it's, it's an old word. It's from it's the right. 70s. But uh, yeah, but um, I think there's always that arc. And I think there's this hunger. And you mentioned classics being taken out of school. And that kind of all shifts really quickly. We mm-hmm. did cover this. Um, Laura Marshall Clark uh, talked about this, but there's the um, Clemente Courses in Humanities. Um, the Ernst Shores, he's passed on. He's a Jewish American writer from New York. And he went and studied poverty throughout um, the United States. And he found communities that could get their way out of poverty on their own volition. Obviously, no one does anything but themselves, but, you know, through their mm-hmm. own initiative. Were communities that used politics with a small P in that the people could negotiate power amongst themselves. And he saw black churches as being a really strong vehicle for this. And by, um, as he studied, he was like, ah, humanities are, are the vehicle that allows us to, um, be able to negotiate power through politics. So that's, um, philosophy, theology, art history. You know, all these things that we've kind of been taught here in Oklahoma, that's that's fluff, that's for rich people, you know, that's extra, right, right. It's not interesting. So Earl Shores um, developed uh, out of Bard College that does amazing things. Um, instead of it, because he's like, poor people get training programs, wealthy people get um, humanities. So he created a humanities course that wasn't easy. It was absolutely demanding. And he recruited the top teachers he could. And he... Um, for the students, it was uh, homeless uh, teenagers from the Bronx. So mm. people that hadn't been to college, and it was wildly successful, completely wildly successful, because this reflection, being able to think through things, being able to verbalize through things, and, you know, music and art, these are all different ways to see things from other people's perspectives. Right. And from that, he went down to Kicha minor communities, um, and there, they, you know, they have a written language, so he was able to use their literature and create the first 
uh, indigenous uh, Clemente course in the humanities. So my father and he worked together, and all these three classes in Oklahoma are still continuing. They developed a Chickasaw humanities course, a Kiowa humanities course, and a, Ch- well, I think the Cherokee humanities course is on break, but hopefully it'll come back soon. Is but, this um, uh, through the local university system? Different different universities, mm-hmm. yeah, but and the tribes supporting, of mm-hmm. course. Um, but the Kiowa humanities course is almost completely independent, but they're still going. But um, it's so important that the language, because as my dad put it, the the wisdom is encoded in the language, the mm-hmm. philosophy, the worldview, our science. It's all included in the language, and um, a lot of um. Uh, tribal museums are actually using native languages to inform how they how they um, work with their native collections. You right. know, because the language and the materials they they dovetail, and you actually learn the language better when you're out in the environment working with you know what was being discussed. So, basket weaving, for instance, is mm-hmm. really important for language retention. But where I was going with all this is, uh, yeah, my father would never uh, promote uh, intertribal humanities course they always had to be tribally specific so you really think about it on one hand you know like with a magazine we have this massive umbrella art by indigenous peoples of the americas but individually each culture each language is absolutely discreet and their expression you know that's where the value is is Mm -hmm. this um, unique expression so making space, I think that's very hard for outsiders to do, but make space for each individual expression of culture of what it is to be human. You know, right, you think right. all these native cultures are experiments in what is possible and ways to be human. So our entire world is so much richer when all these cultures are allowed to live and breathe. And the arts are definitely a link in how to reclaim those. Right. And do you think it's a part of uh, the artist's responsibility to carry that in their work? Yeah, and I mean, again, I'm I'm always gonna fight for this artist to do what you want. You know, if I'm a native person and I am a graffiti artist, and all I want to do is tag, I get to do that. You know, so I think native artists get as many choices as any artist. Right, on right. Side. Yeah, and there's interesting movements right now in um, you know, technology because I think outsiders sometimes see uh, native people as not being technologically advanced, and you're also Cherokee, so you totally understand that. Cherokees were very early adopters of technology. You know, Correct, the, first, yeah. the first college for women, um, mm-hmm. West Mississippi was Cherokee female seminary. First phone installed, telephone installed, brand new technology, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Yeah. So we understand that um, technology and indi- in- indigeneity are not mutually exclusive. So we really need to convey that to the rest of the planet. So I see, um, you know, I follow Damien Jim online, and he's this interesting Navajo artist, and also Dante Biss, um, he's an Osage artist, and they're both experimenting with AI-assisted um, um, really creation. Yeah. What are they, they so, exactly doing with that? Um, just a- um, creating visual images, digital art. Um, so they both already were doing digital art, but now through AI, you can kind of accelerate that process. So some people will see it, you know, maybe as a thread or maybe it's creating schlock, but it's a tool. So you can harness this tool like any other tool. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's more of an exploration and uh, openness to museums and galleries and other venues bringing in Native American art that is not just a no, tokenism. Tokenism, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I hate yeah. that word. <laughs> oh, really? I think it's a good word. Yeah, you know, spells out what's happening. Right. But um, 
Yeah, I'm glad that, um, and I always think whenever we talk about museums, we always have to include tribal museums. Like Correct, the Cherokee Awesome museum. Mm-hmm. Osage Museum, awesome. So, um, yes, but um, I do think it's good that um, Western mainstream museums have this great peer pressure going on that, right. oh, well, they need contemporary Native art in their collections. They need to be showcasing these hot Native mm-hmm. artists. So it's like, oh, I think it's also the diversification that. of some of those museums and, and centers that are saying, know. okay, it's more wide open. We're not so classified to European or South American or Asian art. That There's a more of a wider, broad, and I think people are really, really hungry for that. Yeah, someone was talking about New York being the center of the art world. So I was like, what? We sat on war over that. And I was like, oh my God, I realized that I think of uh, postmodernism as like the, you know, like um, the Revolutionary War. Like, no, we had postmodernism. We're never going back. <laughs> But yeah, um, that it's really important to recognize the plurality of what's out there. And I'm so grateful these encyclopedia art museums are seeing the gaps and seeing right. what they're missing out on. Because I think mm-hmm. Native art is some of the most creative and fascinating art out there. And it's also for collectors, it tends to be undervalued. So it's extremely collectible. Correct. If you're a new emerging collector, you know, and I do kind of consciously present, you know, well, you could be collecting this or that. <laughs> and it's extremely affordable. I wrote an article about, um, oh, God help me, um, Cusco school painting. So that, that you know, came out in the Andes in the 1600s. But um, people are still doing that style of painting today. So it's kind of mannerist, European mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. Uh, painting dovetailed with indigenous, uh, indigenous iconography. So very, you know, Roman Catholic gold, you know, very right. luscious uh, oil paintings. But you'll have, you know, parrots or you'll have, you know, angels with parrot wings or the Last Supper will have, um, you know, uh, I, I'll get the words wrong. But anyway, um, a guinea pig, <laughs> that's the thing, you know. But this, you can get an original oil painting from Peru for $40, which wow. is totally undervalued. Right. <laughs> from the collector's viewpoint, it's but amazing. You'll pay $40 for shipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have a great original painting for $80. Right, right. Yeah. So 10 years is quite joyous occasion to be in print publication. Yeah. Why print? What what made you stay with print? And some people look at print as an old school form in this digital age. So what made you really be saying, okay, I'm going to do a print publication? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I don't think we want, you know, our, you know, day-to-day financial news be sent to us in print. We need we need quick um, news news um, digitally. Mm-hmm. But I think... Uh, Things that are more reflective, we really want to unplug from our computers. I live on my computer, so I definitely want to unplug. And um, what's doing well now in print are um, magazines, like niche magazines Mm -hmm. with a small community that really rely on beautifully printed images. Because that 72 DPI, you know, that only goes so far. Right. Well, um, it's art magazines that are doing well and thriving in print. And then also food and travel, you know, things where you really want to get lost in the beautiful images of printmaking. But um, also, I call, it's, I call that tuning out. You want to tune out, you want to sit there and you want to engage in a sense that you're just being yeah. brought in and, and reading and seeing the yeah. images. And, yeah, anymore, it feels like being online is work. So right. this is you would do more <laughs> yourself. And um, so I'm Gen Z, I'm of that age. And, um, even um, millennials will actually read more magazines than my generation did um, at their age. So 
there is this idea that a print magazine is something more you do for yourself. And it's also you're mm-hmm. engaging with this community. You're engaging Correct. with these voices. So, yeah, I think it's more, it feels more social, even though you're doing it by yourself. Correct. You're you're, you're, yeah, absolutely. You're connecting to it. And I, I like turning the page. I still read books. I still re- read the Wall Street Journal. I still, you know, I like the essence of turning and just you're engulfed in it. I think more than sitting at, like you said, sitting at your computer and seeing all these images and it's like radiance, like work. <laughs> yeah, I want, yeah, I want yeah, that yeah. tune out time. And there are like 50 other tabs open. <laughs> right. <laughs> And dings <laughs> happen and everything oh, else. <laughs> yeah. Our magazine does not ding. <laughs> so your readership is global. Um, yeah. that, that's fantastic. Congrats to you on that. So have you seen a surge of, you know, it be it Canada, South America, Europe, where have you had more readerships start really engaging in, in, in subscribing to your publication? Well, this is definitely English-based, so that is a limitation, which um, I naively at the beginning when we were playing this out, we're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll translate. We'll have a Spanish language oh, issue each time. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's naive. That would be a great goal. But <laughs> we're not there yet. <laughs> but it would be a good goal. But um, yeah, no, definitely the United States. And, um, you know, we started in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Then mm-hmm. I moved to Oklahoma in 2017. But yeah, as I said, because of a relationship with the Abbey Museum, the, the state that has the third largest um, of subscribers uh, is Maine. So, uh, you know, we really try to not be locked into one region. So we mm-hmm. do have subscribers in all the United States and almost all of the Canadian provinces and territories. I need to I need to get them all. But um, yeah, definitely North America focus. But I am so happy and overjoyed whenever I get, um, you know, subscriptions come in from other countries, especially libraries, because then they'll be read and reread. Right. Are there a lot of artists out there that are just blowing you over from North Dakota or California? I mean, just like, you're like, wow, where were these people? You know, they're just, I, I guess, untapped uh, communities, especially like North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming and, and more rural areas yeah and that's an interesting push pull um you know with native art versus um and i shouldn't say versus because we're all you know in it together right. but kind of the mainstream is this idea that oh well you go to art school and you get the msa and you go to the mainstream you know this major college and then you end up in paris or france mm-hmm. you know i mean sorry paris or you know, <laughs> new york or tokyo or sydney you know these major art centers and um that is true in the native art world but there's also a you know, people have this commitment to their communities. So many really stellar artists are in extremely remote rural communities. Mm-hmm. So that that's interesting that you do have to dig. So we have a system that kind of emerged organically. And it was from friends, colleagues like Kelly Church. You know, she's uh, uh, Potawatomi, Adawa, Ojibwe. And she became our Great Lakes, our, our Northeastern Woodlands uh, representative. So we have regional representatives. And they kind of advocate for their region. Mm-hmm. So Jackie Sevier, who's northern Arapaho, kind of represents the northern plains. And she'll get on my case. And she will be <laughs> like, well, we need more northern plains representation. Here, go look at this artist. Go look at that artist. So to have this system where people are actively advocating, right. um, I think is really important. It's a good reminder. <laughs> is there is there one, I think, uh, more area that's more untapped or underrepresented? Oh, my God. So I kind of fell into writing. Well, I mean, I always wrote, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I was doing the magazine um, because I was teaching early Native American art history at the Institute of American Arts. And when I taught, and I, you know, I I took many, many 
art history classes, but I don't have a degree. So I had to just kind of figure things out. So I was going Tiro del Fuego up to Northern Greenland. Wow. I'm just like steamroller, you know, and it was before 1950s. <laughs> you know, what's going on in the Amazon, you know, 2000 years ago that isn't culturally sensitive. We should probably revisit that topic. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so there were gaps. So all these areas, it was so difficult to find information about that if anyone comes to me with an idea from the area, so um, kind of online, I um, became aware of the work of uh, Frank Weaver, who was working with these, uh, the Paitavatara tribe, and I'm sorry if I butcher the name, but uh, they're in Eastern Paraguay. So Paraguay, okay. you don't hear a lot about. Uh, Eastern Paraguay, you really don't hear a lot about the Grand Chaco area. Mm-hmm. So when I saw what he was doing, I was like, oh my God, please, please, you know, can we work together and write a feature article? So I'm, I am like, you know, Greenland, the subarctic, we will kind of, I love math. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll see these gaps and we like, oh, we need to fulfill these gaps. Or if there's a, we hear of an artist that's from a tribe you never hear from, right. then it's, yeah. So Cherokees, there's so many of us. So it's kind of a special occasion, which when we get to cover Cherokee artists, because, you know, we could have entire magazines only devoted to us or Navajo, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a balancing act. But if an artist is good and they're just doing something awesome, Mm -hmm. then we're going to cover them. Fantastic. So you mentioned uh, culturally sensitive art. Yeah. And you you were bitching before about how elders don't always share. And it's like, that's like mm-hmm. constant discussion too in Native art. And through education, I think tribal museums conveying this to more mainstream museums, that mainstream museums are getting the memo. But that not all information is um, for everyone. Um, archivists are really um, fitting for that too, that some information is only for people initiated into it. Some Correct. is only for tribal members. Some are only for people of certain genders, you know, um, and that's just a given. And it's funny because there's this idea that in European Western cultures that, uh, you know, all information is freely available. And that's Correct. not true. And no. I always use an example of like a soda um, formula. Like, how do you make Coca-Cola? I can't access that information. <laughs> like, it's not sacred, but uh, but it's proprietary information. So Western cultures definitely have this idea that information is, you know, some of it will be, is only for certain groups. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do think the mainstream world's getting that memo. And um, I, I was concerned about Native artists who are kind of coming to um, their culture and learning about the culture from making art. So maybe they didn't have super informed elders, you know, kind of telling them what's what. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all in a state of learning. Like none of us have it all figured out. Anyone right, who thinks right. we have figured out does not know. But they don't have this knowledge and they're not in community as much as, you know, uh, you'd like. So there's people that are really crossing barriers, you know, right. really um, committing taboos by what they're portraying, using sacred images that maybe completely are not from their tribe or their region and really like going you know, a little rogue. <laughs> yeah. And um, how do you gently explain that to people? Because you don't want to you don't want to you know slap a young artist down at all. You want to build yeah. them up. But um, mm-hmm. so I did sponsor a talk where, um, yeah, we had five really important leaders from very different tribes discussing sacred imagery. But um, I kind of want, and people think like this is impossible, but I kind of try to do it is just list. Do not do this. <laughs> well, um, the Grand Council of the Haudenosaunee in 1975, they came out and they published a list. They're like, no, do not portray an image of a false face mask. 
do not portray an image of this is for the public. If you're a Correct, practitioner right. using a ceremony, different story. Do not portray a cornhouse society mass. So, you know, I'm like, ooh, you know, because if you put anything out there, people will be like, what if this is all wrong? But then right. you're going to initiate that conversation. But like medicine bundles, contents of medicine bundles, no, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a spiritual leader for your tribe, then you, you have, you can do things that other people can't. But if you're a young artist that's getting your information from books, like be cautious. Right. You can't, <laughs> you can't read everything or you can't believe everything that you read. Um, oh, online, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you definitely need the humility to be corrected. So we do try to have an erot- errata section where it's like, yep, we blew it. We made a mistake. So do you have a collection of various writers that write specifically for the publication? Um, are they freelance or do you have actually staff writers on the publication? Oh, God. That'd be awesome to have staff writers. Um, no, <laughs> Yeah, money is tight, but um, yeah, it's freelancers. And then, you know, I I thought it was just in the native art world that people wear 20 different hats, but it is kind of the art world where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to write, I'll critique, I'll also be an artist, but I'll also work in a gallery, the fifth one. <laughs> and I think that's pretty common. And what's really, I mean, on one hand, that's rough because you're pulling so many different directions. On the other hand, you have so many different perspectives. So I do think every artist out there should curate a show, even if it's just one show. So you know how nerve-wracking it is to handle other people's work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, and I have kind of seen a trend, which, um, you know, it's a little hard, but it, I think ultimately it's good and that you'll have a young scholar who will write for us. And I'll be so happy to have this young scholar write for us. But then they'll get this really prestigious job that soaks up all their time. So it's like, so I do see it as like, oh, we lose people, but that's in a good way because they're getting these awesome professional positions. So yeah, maybe we're transitory, but that's okay as long as that flow keeps happening. Correct, correct. So do you think, what is your message and what's your ultimate goal for the publication to the outside world, especially for the non-native reader? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing is, you know, non-native people have appreciated native art for centuries now. Like I love our book. Albert Durer, where he's writing about, like, he saw this collection of materials from Mesoamerica, and he's like, these are the most beautiful things ever created. But I want, so yes, of course, I want um, the mainstream art world to be aware of Native art, but I also want our, uh, our, our perspectives and our values to come with the art. And I think a lot of uh, curators and writers are seeing that, non-Native writers are seeing you don't just take the art piece. You also want, you know, all the information around it. You want it to be within its context and as best as possible to kind of understand uh, what the creator, the person that was making it was thinking mm-hmm. and what their intentions were. Well, you want to know about them. You want to know their DNA. You want to know their backstory. You want to know why it is that it is what it is. Um, my great grandmother was a bead maker and oh, cool. I got to talk to her before she passed. It's like, what, drove you to be a bead maker she said just the use of what i saw in creating a form with my hands mm-hmm. thought, well that's yeah. kind of unique that makes a lot of sense you know you have something that was instilled in you culturally um and you just felt the urge and i think a lot of artists just feel the urge like you said you don't have to go to school they don't have to go to university they don't have to go and do all the other things that mainstream artists sometimes do it just it just happens because they feel it within, I guess. Yeah. 
And I'm not telling people don't go to art school. Right. <laughs> neither yeah. am I. Neither am I. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's like I hated art school, so I did the kind of the worst way, but also strangely the best way is I hated school. I hated art school, so I kept changing schools. Which of course you know that's that's silly because then your credits don't come with you. Right. <laughs> well, I ended up going to eight different art schools. Wow. Wow. Or eight different schools, but um. But if you want to learn a lot of different perspectives, ultimately, that is the way to do it. So part of my goal, because um, we do have different audiences, we have the collectors as audiences, we have the artists as audiences. So that's always a fun challenge is like, how do you make the information accessible and interesting to these mm-hmm. different audiences? But I do want to kind of break down um, what is the best of art school, you know, this exchange of ideas, this reflection. And um, how do I get that out to the public? So I'm like, so there are a lot of resources that you probably saw on our website, like defining art trends, you know, um, for for Native American issues, like what all these acronyms mean, you know. So it's like, how do we take these ideas and make them available? Because a lot of collectors also don't have the luxury of having MFAs, but they're still passionate about the art. Mm -hmm. So they're absolutely part of the conversation. I always, you know, kind of argue that things can happen in academia and that's great. But if the collectors and the artists aren't aware of it, then it's not really a conversation. So we're trying to break down these complex ideas and make them very accessible and be inclusionary. Right, right. I'm really happy that we've had writers from all sorts of backgrounds, including indigenous backgrounds, not from the Americas. So we only cover art by indigenous peoples of the Americas, but we've had writers that are indigenous to other parts of the world, which I think is fantastic and brilliant. Yeah. The perspective, because we've all, we've gone through similarity, I think backgrounds and changes. And I think there's a connected story that's probably being told but they're just from another place of the world. You know, they could be in from Australia or or so. So is your goal being met with the publication? Are you, is that ever, is that ever changing? (laughs) Yeah. 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 That you accomplish one thing and that just makes you more excited for the next thing. Yeah. So we're um, several writers and I are having kind of these sessions. And then my cousin, like this magazine totally runs on cousin power. (laughs) All my subscribers are my cousins, which thank God I have a ton of cousins and my mom and my sister helped out they proofread early on they copy edited so definitely relations are important but uh but um yeah so the writers and i we're kind of um trying to look and reorganize and kind of uh refine you know what we need to do how can we do it better and how can we grow so kind of what are we going to do for the next decade mm-hmm. wow everything anything and everything <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we have had um, symposia and this educational component. These discussions, I think, are so important and valuable. So it's like, okay, how do we grow that? And we've done Stacey Proud, who's a Muskogee writer from Tulsa, who's really amazing. She and I were able to work with a Shingle Springs Rancheria in California. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do an online workshop where we helped, um, you know, and it was very quick. I wish we could do more. It was several sessions where we work with these artists, these visual artists, to try to empower them to learn how to write about art. And I thought it was so cool that Shingle Springs saw that as a as a useful skill. And I'm like, oh, could we grow that? Could we have uh, workshops, writing workshops. Right. Like, that would be really exciting. That would be fun. Uh, if you ever do that, let me know. I'd love to be yeah. part of that and take part of it in some way or form. Yeah, writing's power. I mean, that's what Sequoia taught us. It's a tool. Let's use it. Right. I want to go back to that because it's it's a very, I think, needed element because it's the educational component, which I'm very excited and try to promote is also the youth 
given that a lot of Native American youth are not given the tools necessary to mm-hmm. learn about art or their backgrounds. Um, and so providing something like that, I think, would be phenomenal. Is that something that's part of your goal set to actually do that? Or is it something that you yeah, actually promote and try to seek outward? Yeah. And it's kind of like I'm pulled into me directions. Like my great makers <laughs> are real. But, um, you know, it's uh, what are the priorities? Um, so we write, but not everyone reads. So right. how do we reach other people? And I'm kind of, when you say do everything, I'm kind of resistant to try to get into video and film. But it does seem like that's kind of um, the lingua franca of our tribe. And how so? And in, in what you know? perspective? Um, what do you mean? Well, if you want to get into video and film, into oh. what avenue? Like actually do no. a movie or script writing or you have stories oh, that you want to? No, no, oh. no, 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 no. That's for other people. Uh. <laughs> Like if you want to get out and do education, that it seems like probably documentaries are probably a way, or even short educational videos, mm-hmm. because there are people that just absolutely don't like reading. <laughs> right. It seems like that probably needs to happen. That's not something I like passionately want to do. <laughs> it just seems something necessary. Right. Well, it's, it's that digital age, and I think it's also, um, for me personally, it's a disconnect. I'd rather see people, see them live. Um, interact. Um, but I think, you know, for those sources that are people that are out there in the rural areas that they don't have the, the ability to go to a class somewhere that's very distant for them and then, you know, travel hour and a half, an hour and a half back and engaging yeah. in that sub uh, documentaries and other elements that kind of engage them and provide the source and resources for them. Oh, personally, I love in-person talks. Yeah. And um, in Santa Fe, like every Sunday, what do you do? Sunday afternoon, you go to the museum and you go to a talk or you go to the bookstore and there's like artists' uh, panels, which I think are great. And moving to Oklahoma, I'm like, that is completely not here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not, but not so much. So I'm like, oh, you know, so I, I've been able to do, you know, personally small talks through um, the Cherokee Heritage Center or the Southeastern Indian Artists Association. And I like doing them one-on-one not recorded because then you can have real talk. You can talk about stuff that's okay for the community, Native people, but not okay for the general public. Like once I know something's um, recorded and going to be on YouTube, you're definitely going to get a different talk than you get in person. <laughs> correct, correct. That That, that is true. So, it's also the engagement. To, um, yeah. I'm sorry? Oh, people should go to like real events with real people. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um America, you're Cherokee, you're a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. What instilled in you at an early age to get involved and be so, such a promoter of your own culture? Oh, my dad, 100%. <laughs> so when yeah. we were kids, you know, my parents, they dragged us to shows, they dragged us to museums. I remember um, we lived in Muskogee, and after church, we would go to the Five Trunks Museum, and, you know, I'd use my little allowance to buy, like, any bitty little cards, you know. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and I, I know other Native artists where they're really, their grandparents or the parents really instilled this important of visual arts to them. Mm. And that's not the Oklahoma story at all. That's not most uh, kids in Oklahoma. But um, I think it's interesting. My parents were involved with um, my dear friend and mentor, um, Dr. Mary Jo Watson, who's Seminole, and um, uh, Benjamin Harjo, uh, who's absentee Shawnee and Seminole. But um, they were all part of this um, intertribal uh Museum, the Center for the American Indian, that opened in 1978. So I was a little kid, you know, but 
my folks, you know, like native families do, mm-hmm. they get to work. So my sister and I, you know, we had to sort through the mailing. So I was like, oh, no, I, I started uh, volunteering or being volunteered for Native Arts um, when I was six. Yeah. So I just kind of grew grew up around it. I kind of rebelled against it, you know, but. Um, <laughs> and now you're continuing carrying the torch and promoting it. Yeah. Yeah, and my dad, um, he was he was the kind of person you could call up and be like, "Hey, I got you know third place in this dinky show in the middle of nowhere." <laughs> They'd be like, "That's fantastic! That's so incredible!" So you know that you're like, "Oh, you're just you're just saying that," but it does feel good to hear that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I have had uh, artists sometimes with artists, uh, you know, they'll be like, "Well, why did you get that?" You know, "Well, I I put in for that." Well, so. Um, I thought after my dad passed on that I'm going to take it on myself. It was so great for him to be such a cheerleader mm-hmm. that I'm going to be a cheerleader for Native Arts. And um, one of my dearest friends is, uh, she's uh, Linda Mahatawa, who's Hopi and Chukka. And if you're Hopi, you absolutely do not, uh, you know, you do not put yourself in front. You don't promote yourself. You don't make yourself more important than the rest of the community. So it's like, okay, well, how did Native artists do it? Because you you know, um, it's just, it's just really, if you are integrated with the community, you can't do a lot of things that are expected of Western artists. Like, Here's my resume. Look at me. I'm so important. Right. I'm trying out for this. I'm trying for that. So I figured that, um, we can be a vehicle where we're, um, we can root for people. You know, we can, we can shout about like, Hey, they got this award. They did this. They did this great project. And that way I, and that brings me to um, another thread about the artists that we uh, profile. And really, we, we, co- we try to cover everyone, you know, mm-hmm. whether we like them or not. doesn't matter. We try to cover everyone. But with the artists we profile specifically, it's really important to me that they have a close connection to their community. Because, yeah, you can be a Native artist and never come home. and never true, if, true. You're, if you're too cool for your tribe, I got, I got some questions about you. Right. But um, that tends to be the people that get most famous and most applauded by the mainstream, the outside. Correct. So correct. I hope that we can be kind of a counterbalance of like, um, well, when is their connection to their community? So being the writer um, or being the editor, per se, of the publication, what drives you, what excites you to being the writer? Oh my God. Um, well, yeah, like you mentioned before, is telling those stories that you don't hear enough about. And um, I do find, I love editing. Like I'm like, yes, I will edit, give me something and I'll edit it. And sometimes that really annoys people because they're like, I just wanted you to read it. I didn't want feedback. So it's like, well, then why <laughs> get to me? But I do find that editing brain is a totally different brain than the writing brain. So I found it more and more and more difficult to write. I'll just say that. But um, I found that I, I also do side projects, side gigs, you know, to fund the magazine. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would um, guest edit uh, publications about Santa Fe Indian Market and Native Art Week in Santa Fe. And I noticed um, the last few directors there have really kind of promoted um, artists from outside the area, but it is Santa Fe Indian Art American that's run by the Southwestern Association of Indian Artists. So I thought it was really important to kind of, ironically, to point the finger back to Southwestern communities. Mm-hmm. So I really tend to take it on myself, and I'm no expert on any of these communities, but to write articles about, you know, Hopi basketry, about Zuni fetish carving. And I think, again, it's really important um, to kind of promote indigenous art forms that often outsiders and sometimes even native artists 
doesn't have that seal of approval that this is art, this is official art. So sometimes people will see it as decorative and they won't right. see it, it in all its complexity or see it as an art form. So I really tried that. I'd, and I don't know how well I succeeded, but, um, you know, I did write one article about Zuni fetishes um, or people say figurative carving because it's not a religious fetish. Correct. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to demonstrate that there's, there's, I interviewed three practitioners that have very, very, very different approaches, you know, and that here's this art form and it's a legitimate art form that has different styles within it and different movements within it. And I think it's so important to um, kind of hold hold the outsider, the reader's hand, and um, help them look and see something that, you know, maybe they've seen this art a hundred times before, but maybe they didn't notice this one thing. Or you give them one clue about, um, you know, kind of the thinking behind the making, right. and then they can see it with fresh eyes. Do you think there's a lot of um, educational behind the writing in the magazine in telling the non-native not everything is southwestern driven you know yeah so we we really uh you know it's it's kind of sad our our early competitors are all they don't exist anymore (laughs) so we only have one competitor main competitor that kind of is in the same field but um everything else was really southwest focused so ironically when we're in when we're based in santa fe we're like okay we're from santa fe we're not of santa fe so it's very important to cover you know, everyone from everywhere. But right. now I think it's really important, like I said, to include the Southwest in that and kind of look, you know, dig deeper. Because I think people think they know about a lot of Southwestern art, but do they really know do about they... it? <laughs> true, yeah, true. But I'm, yeah, of course, you know, growing up in Oklahoma and the art scene here, you know, you always see art, but, you know, maybe the, the outside art world doesn't really you know, doesn't really study our art as much. And here we have so many different tribes from so many different areas. So, mm-hmm. you know, coast to coast, that there's Modoc tribes here, that there's, you know, Seneca Yuga tribes. So it's kind of a luxury growing up here. So you can see all the gaps and how, how complex. The variances, yeah. Yeah. And I always think that um, Oklahoma just, you know, there's many ways that our worlds can exist. And for the most part in Oklahoma, it is, the Native people that are, have been the audience and have been the collectors of Native art here. Mm-hmm. And this idea of appealing to tourists, that's not the only model for art scene or art market. It doesn't have to be outsiders. It doesn't have to be tourists. So there is really wonderful cultural tourism. And I have to give Cherokee Nation, cultural tourism is awesome. Like they're amazing. Absolutely, yeah. I, I'm totally floored by what they do. But um, yeah, tourism's not the only, the only way to promote art or art scene. I think it's telling our story. I think the cultural centers are really doing a fantastic job nationally in telling their story and how we've continued as a peoples, a tribe, yeah. uh, the various nations, and we're more than just what the outsider looks upon. You know, we do have relative items or graphics and stories and uh, that are collectively similar, but we're all different. There's a diversity. There's yeah. there's a, a immense amount of various tribes nationally that need to tell their story. We're not just American Indians, you know, yeah. as the outside world uh, sees us at times, unfortunately, thanks to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what's changing? That is changing right before our eyes. It's really exciting. What other changes have you seen in the last 10 years? Oh my God. Everything. Things are happening so quickly. <laughs> like it's funny to think about, but um, 10 years ago, 
I mean, I can just see one, two, punch. Like, and Native fashion's always been with us. You know, Louis Kibanu was really important. Obviously, we wore clothes. You know, You're right. <laughs> Louis Kibanu was so important in Native fashion. And um, there's so many people. There was Winnipeg and the Native um, Fashion Club. And um, I, I, you know, so all these amazing things. But um, Jessica Mecca, you know, Turtle Mountain Chippewa mm-hmm. from North Dakota, she got her PhD and she really, through Beyond Buckskin, she promoted Native fashion, but also recuperating this history of Native fashion and how, how much it's been done before. Then Karen Kramer curated a show with a, um, with a catalog, um, Native Fashion Now, and that went to New York, NMA. So that's really important. I think it went to NMA. I hope I'm not wrong. But um, yeah, and then boom, now Native fashion is this massive thing. People are completely aware of it. That's why um, the Native art world things happen so quickly. So quickly, right. It's really gratifying. But um, I really honestly think it's like boom, boom, boom. We have the writing, we have the books. Now it's like everywhere. We're here you know, to stay. People are very aware of it. And I'm obviously not much of a fashionista, but um, I think it's exciting because mainstream people, that's a way that they can know about Native art, you know, and buy clothes made by Native people. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a good educational too, uh, tool as well because people learn a little yeah. bit more about the distinct cultures and the heritage aspects and why something is the way it is, the connection that we have to our past, and now they're understanding why this emblem or graphic um or icon is on this dress or this this uh top and why it's used the way it is yeah it's a great spark for conversation um but then i also see like uh native photography like i think it was 2006 or 2003 um Kalea and um veronica pastelora from um uc davis that they published uh, a book about and it was a survey uh, an art show about and then they had a symposium about native photography. So they kind of, and theirs was indigenous global, global indigeneity, mm-hmm. but they kind of produced that book. And then boom, now uh, there's so many major uh, traveling exhibitions about native photography. One's at the Eamon Carter right now in Texas. The Minneapolis Institute of Art is out planning this major uh, survey of native photography with a catalog. So boom, now there's books, there's resources. It's not something you have to scrounge through, you know, and in your library alone to get the one book about. And same with uh, Native American printmaking. Like, just boom. Like, now documenting these histories is happening so much. Correct. We kind of take it for granted. Like, it's always been there, but right. this is a really <laughs> development. It's our time. We're here. We're the yeah. it factor. <laughs> yeah. That's, Although that's... I always want to give credit to every generation of people that did things before. There's a there's a prominent native uh, museum leader who says, "Oh, native people, you know, weren't really curating." I'm like, "Who the heck was curating all these native shows in Oklahoma for the 20th century?" Right. It just didn't native happen. People. <laughs> Fell out of the sky and just happened. If a native person curates a show, there is a book about it. Did it happen? So I think we always have to give credit to all the generations of people that brought us to the point we're at now. But yeah, things are happening and. Um, I think an indigenous uh, rep- representation of Afro-Indigenous communities is now happening at a greater clip. People are much more aware. And one of our readers and advisors, Anya Montiel, was able to just create a, a visual, um, a r- online virtual show of Afro-Indigenous, six Afro-Indigenous really? 
uh, women artists. So that is recent and fantastic. And then um, inclusion of non-binary people. um, And this is exciting that you see this even in um, mainstream art museums, Mm -hmm. you know, inclusion of non-binary and intergender Native artists. And again, how... You know, nothing's new that we're building on our ancestors. The Wheelwright Museum of the American Indian was co-founded, obviously, by Mary Wheelwright, but also Hosting Clark, who was an intersex uh, Navajo spiritual leader. So here's an art museum founded by an, a spiritual leader who is um, non-bite. So that's really kind of exciting. Education, learning, I think that's the key factor yeah. is just opening the door and keep opening many, many doors as we continue on and expanding you know letting the outside world know who we are and what we are and we're here to stay <laughs> you know we're not we're not just the the native american art scene so to speak of what they think it is there's so much more depth to it um and i think a, a, there's a learning process that has to occur and just appreciation as any art form it's all in, about interpretation what the the viewer sees um but i think it's also the the emergence and the the morphing of the various Native American artists and what they're bringing to the Native American art world, you know, be it a painter, be it a sculptor, be it pottery, be it beading and basket weaving and so much more. There's so much more than people really understand. It's not just about the paint or the pot that you see at the roadside stand. (laughs) Even though that can be really fantastic. Yeah, true, true. I've seen a few things I've picked up throughout the day, the years. Yeah. Go ahead. But in reclaiming the archive, um, through all the research that's now available, uh, so many communities and individual artists are able to just look at images online. And it's so much better when they can visit the actual pieces and reclaim art forms that, um, you know, had kind of gone to sleep and died out. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. But that's exciting. And I can't even keep up with um, how many small communities are doing things. But um, there's a great movement towards reclaiming pre-contact textiles and textile dyes and that's kind of happening all over and then um different different um utilitarian art forms and some of these i didn't even know about until a writer or an artist will come and bring this up but even shell carving now is like huge like i i can't count how many shell carvers there are and you have a beautiful piece on today (laughs) (laughs) and where's that artist from oh antonio grant he's from uh Koala Boundary in North Carolina, so okay. Eastern Bend, Turkey. Oh, America, what, what is the best way for our listeners to become readers? Yes, thank you. So I try to make it simple, but I know I can always streamline it more. But um, our website is firstamericanartmagazine.com. And um, you can always uh, subscribe online. If you don't like to do that, and some people don't, um, they can print out a um, form. Honestly, you could look up our address and mail us a check with your address. Um, and then for people that want um, digital, there is digital. Uh, that's your Jumag, but just go to our website and uh, yeah, and you can take it from there from our subscription page. And then we are carried by major stores. Um, so Barnes and Noble, you can go to most Barnes and Nobles, and in Canada, you can go to Chapters Indigo, and we're carried by them, and then. A number of uh, independent bookstores also carry us. So fantastic! Yeah, we always have the little inset. You know, when you're flying and all the insets go flying. I'm a fan. (laughs) We have those. (laughs) I'm definitely a fan of your publication. You're quarterly, correct? Uh, Yeah, and some people. I mean, I would die if it was any if it was any more. But some people (laughs) also said, 
I love it. Weight collectors and subscribers will be like, yes, we read your magazine cover to cover. I love hearing that. And I hear it a lot. But people have also said, don't come out more often. Oh, right. <laughs> like it kind of takes us a period of time to really digest everything completely. Because it is, it is meaty. There's, it's not fluffy. <laughs> no, but I think it's, it, I mean, I'm, I'm a definitely a fan and I go back and I dog ear things and I go back and read it a second and third time sometimes because I just yeah. find it so fascinating and such interesting perspective and artist and people without out there that you know i don't know about and i just find it amazing that there's such an influx of artists native american artists that you know are out there and they're bringing so much to their continued culture and communities yeah and it's interesting because now you know with instagram you think oh well do you need this because you could just follow the artist on instagram like oh quick and easy (laughs) quickly you get overwhelmed (laughs) like the native art world is small but it's also really big too so it's kind of that's almost the service we probably um supply is kind of making sense of all these currents and there's so much that okay well can we pinpoint this can we pinpoint that There's such an overload, but it's good. It's good that it's happening, that there's so much influx and so much variety and diversity of artists out there that you can actually capture. And congrats. Congrats on 10 years. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Beyond the Art. And congrats to you again at 10 years. Hopefully we can do 10 years. (laughs) <laughs> yeah or maybe you'll be making films but uh, i'm really excited by uh, you listed so many interesting artists and arts advocates so i look forward to seeing who you're uplifting and promoting too fantastic thank, thank you. you for that absolutely yeah.